Hello, and welcome to the Tuesday, December 1st, 2020 episode of the Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. This is Craig W. Hurst, Emeritus Professor of Music, podcasting from my music bunker along with my faithful canine companion, Carmel the Wonder Dog, to share with you my latest musical interests and discoveries. I claim no special inside information about the latest or greatest music, nor do I know everything there is to know about music. What I am is a lover of music. I enjoy several genres of music, and I share with you what has currently caught my interest. Old, new, outdated, and everything in between. Even old music is brand new if you've never heard it before. The universe of music is a vast one to enjoy. From my discussions, you might find something new to you and of interest to expand your own musical universe. I currently receive no compensation or motivation of any kind from any recording label, recording artist, or estate of any performer or composer dead and gone to discuss their music and or recordings. Now with that out of the way, welcome to my musical universe. My guest today is Dr. Bob Lark. Bob and I have known each other since before cell phones and the internet. During our days as graduate teaching assistants, under John J. Haney at the University of North Texas. To say Bob has had a successful career would be a gross understatement. During his career, Bob has become recognized internationally as a jazz educator and performer. He has been active in sharing his pedagogical approach through numerous professional conferences and publications. In 2010, Downbeat Magazine recognized Bob's work with their Jazz Education Achievement Award. Bob serves as Professor of Jazz Studies at DePaul University in Chicago, Illinois, where he directs the University Jazz Ensemble, teaches jazz trumpet, and courses in jazz pedagogy, jazz style, and jazz history. Under his direction, the DePaul University Jazz Ensemble has produced several outstanding performance awards from the Jazz Educators Journal, Downbeat, and Jazz Times magazines, and has recorded albums with legendary jazz artists Phil Woods, Clark Terry, Louis Belson, Bob Brookmeyer, Jim McNeely, Jeff Hamilton, Slide Hampton, Randy Brecker, Tom Harrell, Iris Sullivan, Mark Colby, Bobby Shue, Frank Wess, Ron Perello, and members of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. In 2013, DePaul University honored Bob Lark as an ambassador for the DePaul Distinctions Campaign. Bob has recorded both as a solo performer and as an ensemble director, earning the praise of Clark Terry as a good trumpet player, a very good musician. He's paid his dues. His most recent releases include the live recording Thick as Thieves, with the Bob Lark Phil Woods Quintet, including pianist Jim McNeely, bassist Steve Gilmore, and drummer Bill Goodwin, and the album Sweet Return with his professional big band, Bob Lark, and his alumni big band. I am honored to have Bob as a guest today but mostly honored that I count him among my friends.
Hello, Bob. It's great to talk to you. Hey, Craig. Thank you for having me. It's a, it's a treat to talk to you anytime, and uh, hopefully our uh, guests will find this to be uh, uh, entertaining, if not amusing. Mm -hmm. For my listeners who may, uh, may be unfamiliar, would you talk a bit about the the jazz scene in your neck of the woods prior to the COVID-19 shutdown last March? And then what have you been doing since the shutdown of live music because of the pandemic? Mm -hmm. Well, um, the last gig that I played was a uh, was at Chicago's Jazz Showcase, which is uh, arguably the premier jazz club in Chicago. It was founded in 1947 by Joe Siegel, and actually he just passed away this uh, past August. The club's still in existence, and um, there are several wonderful clubs in Chicago that have been thriving. The Green Mill, Andes, I mentioned the Jazz Showcase. Of course, we have the Chicago Jazz Festival um, every uh, Labor Day weekend. Uh, lots of uh, performing venues, uh, small, medium, and large around the city. It's, it still is a vibrant, um, community. Um, I would say after New York City, I'm not aware of a, uh, uh, a city in the nation that has more activity and, and arguably per musician, things could be a little bit better here from what I hear from peers and uh, former students that are in New York. But um, yeah, I played a couple gigs at the Jazz Showcase uh, that last week it was open in mid-March. I played a gig with my alumni big band, which is a professional big band that plays about every three or four weeks in the city. And uh, my uh, jazz septet, which I formed uh, about 10, 12 months ago. We just started playing gigs uh, last December, a couple times a month at the Jazz Showcase. Um, different arrangements of mine and uh, different guys in the band. And I'm fortunate to have a lot of the music. The late saxophonist Phil Woods left me his entire jazz library. Um, we, uh, we did four recordings together over the years. And uh, uh, as, as he put it, uh, we were thick as thieves. And uh, rubbing elbows with a great musician like that was, was wonderful for me. And, and he just voluntarily one day started sending me files of all his music. So I have his little big band music, stuff written for eight, nine and 10 piece. Um, and I've whittled some of that down for my uh, septet. Wow, that's so, great. Uh, yeah, so things were, were going great <laughs> until the pandemic. I actually had more performing gigs than I've had maybe in more than a decade. Um, I'm fortunate to do a lot of uh, guest conducting in clinics. Um, and then everything hit the brakes. And uh, recently, until, <laughs> until today, <laughs> some of the jazz clubs had reopened on a limited basis for very small crowds. Uh, they were, uh, the Jazz Showcase was open Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, until today, um, hosting uh, jazz trios and no larger than a quartet, but the band uh, and vocalist, if there was one, just dispersed across the stage, very limited uh, seating. And uh, because of the governor's order, that's all come to a halt. Um, as, as you've probably seen on Facebook, a lot of musicians around the nation and around the world have been doing outdoor concerts um, with social distancing, but especially up here we're <laughs> in Chicago, that's over with, in including my son. Uh, my son, Bobby, uh, he'll turn 28 next, next month. Good Lord, how did that happen? Um, he's a, uh, he's a uh, public school band director, a very active performer. Um, he's in a uh, three horn rock band that does all original music. And their last performance was last Friday. And he, he says, we, we can't really, as he put it, he goes, we can't really rehearse indoors. So yeah. the band's gonna be on hiatus uh, indefinitely. So he's a little frustrated about that. I haven't played a gig since March, since I played yeah. the jazz showcase, but uh, I've been writing a lot of music, um, practicing, uh, learning finale, <laughs> something <laughs> I've been meaning to do forever. Mm -hmm. um, and doing a whole lot of home improvement projects. But, uh, uh, and to state the obvious, I'm doing a lot of teaching for DePaul University where I've been for 31 years. I'm teaching uh, remotely as they call it online. And that's going better than I suspected it would. Um, 
and I'm finding that I, I actually enjoy that. I really miss rehearsing bands at school in person. And uh, I really miss performing with my peers on stage. But, uh, you know, it's going to be like this for quite a while from what I hear. Yeah, I hear you. I just right before we connected online here, I finished a couple of emails, one to my uh, band <clears throat> at the university. And then I also conduct uh, the Southeastern Wisconsin New Horizons Band, which is a band for older adults. And I wrote them an email primarily because the latest data from the aerosol studies related to wind instruments just came out today. And so I was forwarding that, but also indicating we're probably not going to see each other for quite a while yet still. So. Yeah, you can put, you can put a, uh, they have these things that they're making now, these little nets that can go over the bells of instruments. Uh, some, some former students are using puppy pads with mm -hmm. their public school bands to empty spit valves. Um, other people are wearing masks with little openings for, uh, to put the mouthpiece in for brass and reed instruments, but yeah, I don't know. And then you have to social distance, but my, my argument months ago to my administration was, look, a big part of what we do in rehearsing is to coach one another to listen left to right, listen front to back in our ensembles, to hear where the pulse is being kept for intonation, blend, balance, interaction. So if you're spreading people out, you know, it's not a rock band yeah. <laughs> in an outdoor theater where everybody has a, a, a device in their ear and you can be 20 feet apart and you're playing through loudspeakers, but you're hearing the click track in your ear. It's not like that with the, the music that generally is taught at universities, instrumentally mm -hmm. and vocally. You want to be physically close to one another in acoustic performances. And uh, I've seen different institutions, including our alma mater. Uh, I've watched some of the rehearsals online and I, I feel bad for everybody. They're trying to do the best they can. Sure. What I'm doing uh, at DePaul, I'm, I'm currently conducting a big band and a combo, but technology isn't at the point yet where we can really rehearse online. Everybody would have to have great equipment, software program. I'm not a recording engineer and you have to have skills to really know how to uh, do things uh, properly. And there's a natural delay otherwise yeah. with, um, with Zoom, et cetera. So what I've been doing is giving 20 minute lessons each week to every mm -hmm. ensemble member, uh, assigning big band literature uh, and rehearsing different uh, segments of the big band's uh, arrangements. Uh, I've written a couple of books, one of which is, uh, I call it The Art of Jazz Style. Um, and it has a whole series of one, two, four, eight, and 16 bar jazz etudes in it, coaching jazz rhythms, co coaching jazz figures, um, making different assignments on uh, the D2L Desire to Learn uh, link website that the university has. And then um, a series of little videos that I make every few weeks, you know, three to eight minutes in length that have the students look at. And uh, I'm also assigning a lot of video interviews that are on YouTube. Mm -hmm. There's some great stuff out there. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, different uh, ensemble performances. I mean, almost all of my students weren't aware that Dizzy Gillespie ever had a big band. Mm -hmm. let alone that it was a killer big band. And most students have never heard the Quincy Jones Jazz Orchestra. And there's some wonderful old videos of those groups, let alone Thad Jones and Mel Lewis. There's a great video out there featuring, featuring tenor saxophone icon Joe Henderson mm -hmm. playing with Thad and Mel. I mean, so there's some great things to, to kind of, I'm trying to use this unfortunate time, Craig, to fill in the blanks for our students, um, especially in terms of rhythm. Uh, students these days, to sound like the old man that I am, they don't seem to be as good at reading rhythms as maybe back in the day. Uh, so I'm kind of filling in gaps with that through different assignments. Mm -hmm. So oh, it all sounds, you know, what it is, it's just a matter of, uh, of uh, you know, um, necessity is the mother of invention. Mm -hmm. And we're just trying to find creative solutions to work as best we can within the constraints that we have. Sounds like you're doing a lot of great stuff. 
Well, you've heard, you know, you certainly have had a really wonderful career as a, as a jazz musician and as a jazz educator. Would you reflect on some of your more memorable experiences of your career? Well, um, you know, starting at University of North Texas, where I was a graduate teaching fellow, as you know, with, with classical trumpet and brass quintet, but I also directed uh, lab bands for three years. Uh, three years of my doctoral study, uh, directed the sub nine o'clock, the seven o'clock, and then the three o'clock band. And I was fortunate to play in Jim Riggs' two o'clock band and eventually Neil Slater's one o'clock band. And uh, those were wonderful experiences. And um, as, a, uh, as a relatively young graduate assistant teaching fellow, with, especially with the nine and seven o'clock bands, I had some incredibly talented freshmen and sophomores who've gone on to be quite successful. Um, uh, Brad Lely, uh, who now teaches at North Texas, and of course he was uh, Harry Connick Jr.'s lead alto player for years. His first two years of big band, he was stuck with me. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and uh, that, that's just one example of, of several people. I had uh, the fortune of uh, having his students in my band. And uh, I don't know if I helped him any, but I can say, oh, well, he was once a student of mine or she was once a student of mine. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I've been very lucky with that. And then here, at, uh, I taught in Kansas for three years and uh, at a very small school. But uh, I took that gig at Emporia State University in Kansas, not for my love of corn or soybeans or wheat, but that's where Clark Terry, the great jazz icon Clark Terry, had a summer jazz camp for years. And whoever took this university gig as the director of jazz studies at Applied Trumpet inherited camp directorship. And uh, so I got to... Uh, work with not only students and wonderful faculty, but I got to meet Clark Terry and, and a lot of his uh, peers. And as you know, Clark had been a, a, a hero of mine. And mm -hmm. uh, it was, as the saying goes, it was the start of a wonderful friendship mm -hmm. uh, that lasted up until his passing. Um, so I got to uh, work with Clark. And in a sense, that was the start of my postdoctoral study. Um, as Clark said to me more than once, you college guys like to have everything written out for you. Learn to trust your ears more than your eyes. And that became a theme that I heard from other icons that I've rubbed elbows with over the years, whether it was uh, the great drummer, Louis Belson, or uh, Phil Woods, uh, or Bob Brookmeyer. I'm a big name dropper because I've been really fortunate to uh, have our students work with uh, these people but also uh, selfishly, I've worked with them uh, in pedagogical situations, but also in performances. Mm -hmm. um, playing at the Chicago Jazz Festival with uh, Phil Woods on multiple occasions and Clark Terry, um, playing at the International Duke Ellington Conference, which I didn't even know existed. But Clark Terry back in the 90s uh, recommended to the conference that they bring in my pro big band to. Uh, play the music of Ellington. So um, that was kind of neat uh, to say the least, but uh, mm -hmm. getting to know Clark Terry really well, um, getting to have uh, more than a few glasses of milk with him over the years, <laughs> hear the stories, uh, same thing with Phil Woods and uh, uh, with Louis Belson, it was a lot of pasta. Uh, Louis, never, Louis never drank, Louis never, uh, so, so he told me, um, this is interesting. Louis Belson used the DePaul Jazz Ensemble for about 12 years as his Midwest big man. I don't know if you were aware of that. Uh, many people aren't, but we performed at festivals all over the Midwest. We did concerts in Wisconsin, Lake Geneva, other places. And Louis Belson twice hired the DePaul Jazz Ensemble to be his big man on jazz cruises, mm. um, which was wonderful. And uh, I got to know Louis quite well. Uh, absolute gentleman. In fact, I got to know him, unfortunately, shortly after his uh, first wife, Pearl Bailey, passed. Um, and I started performing with him on occasion. And then he found out I had a big band at school that, that had a reputation for being pretty good. And one thing led to another. And um, 
I mentioned the Jazz Showcase, the club in Chicago early in, in this, this program. Um, that's been my real blessing and joy in Chicago. Um, more than anything else, I owe a debt of gratitude to the Jazz Showcase and their proprietors because whether it's been my small group, my big band, or our students at DePaul having many opportunities to perform week-long engagements or even one-nighters, but week-long gigs with uh, Tom Harrell, week-long gigs with Clark Terry, week-long gigs with Bobby Shue, Randy Brecker, um, Jim McNeely, um, uh, Jim, the late Jimmy Heath, Benny Golson, uh, Jeff Hamilton, the drummer, on and on. We've just been lucky the last 31 years to uh, have these wonderful opportunities to share the stage with these guys. And uh, my bands have made over 30 CD recordings, um, a couple with Clark Terry, some with Frank West, uh, four with Phil Woods, um, on and on. So it, it it's been a wonderful mm. journey and a tremendous opportunity. And I have learned so much about music performance from uh, rubbing elbows with a, a few specific people. Clark Terry taught me a lot. He literally took me under his wing as he has with hundreds if not thousands of people. Uh, the late Phil Woods, who I was at first a little anxious to meet because I had heard he was a little crusty but it turns out he was just like uh, my great uncles and we got along great. Mm, um, we re cool. I, I really miss, I really miss Phil every day. And Clark Terry was so kind to, my birthday is December 19th, Clark's is December 14th. And for, I don't know, maybe 15, 17 years or something, I guess, cause he was bored. He would call me up on my birthday and he would say, hawk, hawk the lock. <laughs> And then, and then, either with a muted plunger or with his flugelhorn, he'd play happy birthday to me. And we'd shoot the breeze for, you know, I don't know, 12, 15 minutes. And uh, I must say, he started it. He called me at first. I, I just was dumbfounded. I mean, how kind for him to do that. And so mm -hmm. I would call him on the, on the 15th. I'm sorry, on the 14th. My son is born on the 15th. On the 14th, I would call him and uh, do the same thing. And say, uh, I didn't say Hark Hark. I'd say, Hey Clark, and then I'd start playing. And uh, um, it was that was one of the real charming things over the years. Um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm. It's nice to have great long-term friends such as yourself. And I'm fortunate. I still have my parents with me, uh, my brothers and sister, and obviously my wife and, and kids. But to get to know some of your heroes from when you were growing up. Craig, when we went to school, I had no idea I'd get to know Clark Terry or work with him or make recordings mm -hmm. with him or Phil Woods. I had no idea. If sure. you would have told me that, I would have said, yeah, right. Mm -hmm. um, and frankly, back then, professional artists of that stature didn't record with uh, college bands. Mm -hmm. um, but I made that a priority. And I, I, I talked to people at the Jazz Showcase, which is where everything started. I said, hey, if you want to have... Uh, a big band with it, one of your headliners. I got a band for you, and I promise you, I'll make sure that we can play. Mm -hmm. um, and that led, that also helped it, with the recruiting process to our program. Was hey, if you come to uh, Chicago, hopefully you'll network for gigs and study with some great colleagues that we have here. But you're also going to get to rub elbows with some of the greats in the business. Mm. So oh, that's uh, awesome. Yeah, and, and and Phil Woods just so so kind to me and. He could get so frustrated, but Louis Belson, there's never been a kinder person on the planet. Mm -hmm. And his, his nickname, I, I started to go here, but I, I got off track. I talked to him one, one night about uh, what it was like playing with Duke Ellington's band and all these great artists. And, uh, and he was talking about some friends of his like Zoot Sims who passed away a little too soon because he abused alcohol and some other things. He kept talking like that. And he was, he was just reflecting on two or three of his longtime friends who were jazz icons that had passed. And I said, Louie, I never heard about you and any issues. Did you struggle with anything? And he, and he smiled and he looked at me, he goes, no. He goes, you know, my nickname was Apples. I said, <laughs> Apples? And he goes, yeah. Uh, he was married to, to Pearl Bailey, I think since the 50s. He goes, uh, I didn't want to do any of that stuff. I didn't want to do any of those uh, 
bennies as they call them uppers mm-hmm. and whatever or, or coke or anything like that and uh, he said so what i always did was carry apples in my uh drumstick bag i said what he goes yeah and then if we're on the bus or somewhere and some musician decided hey man you want some of this he said no, no i'm eating an apple <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I'm not telling the story very, very enthusiastically, but to see Louie do it, it was just matter of fact. Oh no, no, thanks. I, I'm, I'm eating an apple now. He says, down. I always, I always. He goes, I told Pearl I'd always carry apples, and um, somebody wrote a tune called "Apples" uh, uh-huh. as a tribute to Louie uh, back in the day, back in the '50s. I don't know what, <laughs> who it was, but uh, just a little silly story, something I never heard. And he goes, yeah. He goes, my nickname was Apples. I'll be darned. That is interesting. Go figure. (laughs) Yeah, really? (laughs) Oh, that's great, Bob. Thanks for sharing all those wonderful anecdotes and stories. You know, I know you came out with your book, I Warm Up for Trumpet, a couple of years ago, because I bought a copy. Are you currently? Oh, you're the one. Yeah. (laughs) Are you currently working on anything new? pedagogically or planning on uh, another book for the near future? Well, I, I mentioned I have this book that I actually wrote. It was a, it started as a collection of uh, handouts that I would create. I call it the art of jazz style inter- and interpretation. The art of jazz style and interpretation. I publish it myself, which means if you want a copy, you call me up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I send it to you. Um, these are not the best times to have things published, even before the pandemic, um, in part because of technology. Um, so I was actually approached by, uh, by the, um, the company to create that book uh, that you spoke of, the, the mm-hmm. warm-up. Mm-hmm. I was pleasantly surprised they, they sought me out um, because I had tried to get this other book published, which I use all the time. and. I'm using it this week with with students. Mm-hmm. Um, so what am I working on now? I'm in the process of, uh, at, when I got up this morning, I'm taking a bunch of George Gershwin tunes and I'm creating solos, unaccompanied solos for flugelhorn and trumpet, like one and two chorus solos. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this morning I started working on Our Love is Here to Stay. So basically what I'm doing is playing a chorus with nothing other than the metronome in my head and uh, embellishing and trying to outline the harmony. Baba do we da, boo da do da do da, ba do ba do da, boo ba beep ba ba do ba. And then by the second chorus, I started improvising more and always defining the harmony. So in a sense, and, and I'm improvising, but I periodically put the horn down, grab literally a pencil, piece of paper and I scratch on this mode of like, hey, maybe this would be good. So in a sense, these are gonna be like, my hope is to make them available to anybody. Of course, being Gershwin tunes, I don't know, I'd have to secure some copyright, but uh, mm-hmm. anyhow, make them like etudes or something that uh, students could maybe play on a recital. Maybe a classical undergraduate trumpet player wants to do a jazzy thing for two or three minutes. Mm-hmm. Well, there you go. Oh, um, sounds like a great idea. And if I can't secure copyright for it, then it's something that I have. I'm just, I intend to record it uh, when the pandemic's over, maybe even before it's over. Um, I just got a microphone in the mail two days ago, but <laughs> it's still sitting in the box that I'm looking at right here. And uh, yeah, I'd like to record basically an album of just me because it's all about me, dig me. <laughs> Let me tell you some more about me. <laughs> Oh, by the way, let's talk about that. Well, it is twenty. Well, it is the twenty twenties. It's the it's the Bob Lark decade where we're thinking about Bob Lark. Well, you know, you hear this stuff going up about oh, I'm and you'll see on TV or whatever. Oh, I play this music for my fans, for the people. We play music for us. Sure, we do. I play the trumpet. I mean, I think my mom likes hearing it. As my dad said on my 40th birthday years ago, he goes at dinner and my wife just about choked. He goes, hey, hey Bob, do you still play the trumpet? <laughs> <laughs> Talk about deflating. My wife goes, dad, 
That's what Bob does for a living. He teaches and he plays. And you know those recordings he mails you? And my dad goes, oh, yeah, well, I, that was a year or two ago. I didn't know if you were still playing. <laughs> so, so I used to have horrible stage fright when we were classmates, Craig. And enough things happened in life. I have a wife that's a three-time cancer survivor. Uh, that'll hit you in the fanny and make you realize uh, don't take things too seriously. But also rubbing elbows with jazz icons like Clark Terry, Phil Woods. I've actually heard those people make, quote, unquote, clams. Not horrible ones, but enough that I would say to myself, oh, if I did that, that would be that would have destroyed me. Yeah, I hear maybe you. Clark would chip a note and then the next 30 seconds he plays are just gorgeous. Yeah. Or Phil Woods or Louie. And it's like if it doesn't bother them and they're way better at performing than I am, what uh -huh. am I worried about? Sure. And nobody cares. And you know what? Nobody cares about my playing as much as I do. No, I, maybe I, my mom. I'm with you. Maybe so, so I play for my satisfaction and enjoyment. Um, I think what I do can be a benefit to students to find their way in life. Mm -hmm. um, and if other people want to come along for the journey, great. If you like what I'm doing, great. If you don't, that's fine. Sure. So why are you doing these acapella solo things on Gershwin? Because I want to do it. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I love melody. Um, I, uh, I enjoy most types of jazz, but over the last 30 years, in part of who, because of who I've rubbed elbows with, but the kind of music I've liked since, uh, I got started playing jazz in the seventies. I like, I like Tin Pan Alley. I like the Great American Songbook. I, I mean, I love the Great American Songbook. I love jazz classics. I'm not so much into the avant-garde. I'm not opposed to it. It's just not what I choose to listen to or play very often. Sure. I hear you. Well, you know, you've mentioned already, and I know I also know from looking at your recordings that you write a lot of tunes mm -hmm. that are recorded by your big band and your, your small groups groups. Could you uh, share with my audience a bit about your creative process and how you go about when you write an original composition? Do you do you start with a melody or a rhythmic idea or a particular chord change or chord changes? Mm -hmm. uh, do you keep like a sketchbook of ideas or and vamps or other mm -hmm. things that you can draw upon later? Could you share with us a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, thank you for asking. Um, um writing tunes i don't i don't really write big band arrangements yet i write tunes and um painstakingly sometimes voice them out for two three and four horns um but i write in a very non-intellectual way um I, I have i have plenty of jazz composition arranging books uh i have uh, colleagues and former students who are award-winning writers who I've talked to. But um, going back to my, my experience in Kansas, which is when I really started to think about writing music, the jazz music, I didn't write jazz music at all. I didn't write any music through three degrees in college. I didn't, I don't think I wrote a thing that I can remember. Um, but Clark Terry got sick one year and couldn't do the uh, Emporia Jazz Camp. Um, so I hired, um, just completely out of the blue, cold called Bob Mincer, mm -hmm. who was uh, arguably the hot big band composer, arranger, and band, band leader uh, around 1989, 1990. And I, I conned him, I mean, convinced him <laughs> to be a uh, guest artist headliner for the jazz camp in, in, in lieu of uh, Clark Terry, and got to know Bob quite a, quite a bit, never over a glass of milk. Um, just just friendly chatter and, and dinner. And, and uh, off and on, I've, I've had the pleasure of working with Bob now for 30 some years. Uh, just a, as gifted a performer and, and musician's mind that I've ever met. And he's a noted composer and arranger. And he'll be the first to tell you that he composes in a very non-intellectual way. He just kind of hears things and writes them down and kind of took the lead from that when I write a tune, I usually come up with a thought. And not unlike Bob Mincer, 
what he has told me, and, and by the way, my stuff is nowhere near at his level, or other people I've had the pleasure of rubbing elbows with, uh, composer, pianist, uh, Jim McNeely, who has been my pianist on all of my small group recordings. Uh, and uh, I've known Jim for over 30 years, and uh, there is no better writer of jazz music, in my opinion, on the planet than Jim, than Jim McNeely. And uh, of course, one of his teachers was the late Bob Brookmeyer. But um, in talking to Jim about how he goes about writing things, the first thing I do is come up with, well, Bob, what do you want to do? I want to write a ballad. Okay. Um, restrict yourself. What do you want to do? I want to write a ballad. Do you care about the form, Bob? Maybe, maybe not. But I'll, I try to decide fairly on with the understanding that I might change my mind because uh, context determines everything. I'm going to write a ballad. So this is how I went around about writing uh, the ballad Kathy's song, which is the first ballad that I wrote. Let's make it simple, A-A-B-A form. And um, what the heck am I going to do? Because I don't play piano. And I'm not being modest. I stopped playing piano after my freshman year of college, and I really <laughs> haven't played it since. And well, how did you get through your master's and doctorate, the exams? That's something we could talk about over a glass of milk. Um, <laughs> but no, I'm not being flipped. I don't play piano at all. I mean, I know where middle C is. And if you watch me play, attempt to do something on the piano, it wouldn't take you more than a few seconds to realize Bob's not joking. He really doesn't play piano. <laughs> and so I'm weird in that sense, but I make great use of other resources, play along recordings, uh, other recordings that exist, playing along with pre-recorded artists, um, my own playing. So I'll find a form or a couple bars that I like. There was a tune by some great jazz musician that started out in D minor. And I figured, yeah, I kind of want a somber mood. I wrote this tune when my wife first got diagnosed with cancer. Uh, and I was feeling very melancholy. And I remembered a story that Bob Brookmeyer said once, you know, just because somebody has cancer doesn't mean you're going to write the world's greatest ballad that's going to be you know somber or whatever but okay what do we know about western music minor is kind of sad as opposed to major so d minor yeah it's a good key for trumpet so you asked what do i think about what what will help me to sound good <laughs> as a performer so i started out in d minor i came up with a couple chords that i liked um through abersold play along recordings through other lead sheets of looking at tunes, I might piece together a four bar harmonic phrase or an eight bar phrase or whatever. And so I kind of stole two bars here, four bars there, got to the bridge after the first 16 bars. And I was listening, I listened to a lot of music, especially on my commute to Nepal. I listened to a ton of music every day. I, it's not an exaggeration to say that I listened to at least three hours of music every day jazz music. I'm, I'm that weird guy. Mm -hmm. um, and I was listening to a Dexter Gordon recording of uh, the tune You've Changed. And so I decided, well, I like that tune. I'm going to use the first couple bars of the bridge to You've Changed to be the bridge to Kathy's song. And uh, so I finished writing the tune and recorded it. And Actually, my, my colleague Tom Matter wrote a big band arrangement of that tune for me that's sold hundreds of copies so far. So it's my hit. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's, what I do, Craig, is I write simple little tunes. Mm -hmm. And I, I try to make the, the lines very melodic. Sometimes, what do I do? I typically write a chord sequence. I decide what the meter is going to be. Almost always it's 4-4, four, four, although in the, to be honest, I'm in the process of writing a waltz at the moment also. Um, and then I find little licks that I like to play that work over it, uh, things that sound melodic, things that sound like the next phrase that's going to follow what I'm playing makes sense to what I've done, antecedent consequent phrasing, and I do my best to not be too cookie cutter. Uh, and music that's um, influenced by musicians that I love, whether it's Phil Woods or uh, Jim McNeely or, or Brookmeyer or Tom Harrell or Randy Brecker, those kind of things, more so than maybe some other kind of artists. Um, 
Yeah, so some, and I do keep a, a book. Uh, I think you had asked this uh, of me maybe before the interview. I do keep a book of licks and motives that I like. In fact, I have some right here. Ideas for intros to a tune. Well, there's, it's kind of cliche, but and I'm not much of a singer. But some of the pitches have some harmonic alterations that make them a little more contemporary and less cliche. But I'll come up with little motives, and sometimes I'll decide to go to my little stack, so to speak, and say, uh, you know what, I've been wanting to put this little motive in a tune somewhere, or as an outro or an intro to a tune. Mm -hmm. um, so in that sense, I, I think it's kind of a non-intellectual way. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, I remember uh, recording, I think it was the second or third time I had recorded Kathy's song. And Jim McNeely was with me in the uh, studio. And uh, the, the pianist, uh, Studio Studio Chicago, I think it was in Chicago, uh, a, a, a legendary recording studio. And we're playing the tune and he's playing it for the first time. And uh, we get to the bridge and he looks over at me and smiles. And when we're done recording, he knew the story behind Kathy's song. I wrote it when Kathy was first diagnosed with cancer. Our youngest kid was a year old. Our oldest kid was four. It, life sucked, and uh, he know he knew I was in a real emotional spot. And he goes, he goes, that's heavy what you did. And I said, what? He goes, you used the first uh, few bars of the bridge. You put you've changed in there. And he, he goes, good for you. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, you're the only person who's ever caught that. But that's <laughs> where I got those. That's where I got those few bars at the bridge. Wow. And, and the melody doesn't sound like you've changed at all uh -huh. in my well, anyways. But he, as a pianist, he, he, he all of a sudden looked at me and smiled because like that. Because that's, he's a great composer and like sure. Mentor and these other guys, they know. They know. Sure. I mean, they know these formulas like the back of their hand, these <clears throat> Tin well, Pan Alley, Great American Songbook formula tunes. And uh, Well, he's, ins he's inside enough to get yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I said to him, I said, chops. Yeah. He goes, I said, now, can you figure out where I get the rest of the stuff? Cause I don't, I don't have an original thought. <laughs> <laughs> everything I do, everything I say is beg, borrowed or stolen from somebody. Yeah. I hear you. I, I, hear I, you. I don't have an original thought. If I have a good idea pedagogically, it's cause I got it from this person or that person or whatever. And sure. I'll take credit for the dumb stuff. Anyway, well, I've got one final question for you. Uh -huh. And this is a question I've asked of every jazz musician that I've interviewed thus far. Mm -hmm. And so now I'm going to ask you, what is it that makes jazz unique in comparison to other styles of music? Freedom to choose. Freedom to choose uh, to interact with other performing uh, members of an ensemble, assuming that you're in one small group, trio, quartet, septet, big band. Um, free, freedom to uh, choose what you, what, if you're improvising, um, you can choose the motive, you can choose the rhythm, you can choose to substitute harmonically. Um, freedom, freedom, context determines everything. If you're playing the Hummel Trumpet Concerto, here are the notes. There's a certain amount of freedom on the type of uh, articulation you may use or the dynamic shaping a little bit. And maybe every now and then you might be able to um, impart a little bit of freedom. But in general, we're supposed to play the tune as Hummel wrote it or Haydn wrote it or whatever. Mm -hmm. And um, that's what I love about jazz music is, is that freedom. Mm -hmm. At the same time, there's a great myth in jazz music that you have the freedom when you're improvising to do whatever you want. Well, that's a bunch of crap. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you don't have the freedom. There are restrictions. Usually when you improvise, there's a tonality. Usually there's a meter. Usually you're playing with other people. All those things are restrictions. There's still a lot of freedom, but if you just play whatever you want, look, if you want to hear pure improvisation, Christmas time, uh, find a three-year-old uh, niece or nephew 
that's never played the piano, let them have access to your piano in your house and lock yourself up with them for 20 minutes. It's really cute for the first 20 or 30 seconds when they smack the keys. Mm-hmm. And, and then you start looking for a glass of milk. So uh, ex- that's, that's pure improvisation. I experienced that with my granddaughter. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I, I think that's an excellent way to put it. Uh, because it's, it's the freedom. It's the freedom to interact with the, yeah. the drummer who went, gah, gah, gah. I can choose to not necessarily mimic that, but play off of that. Yeah. Uh, and that's different than playing a sonata, concerto, symphony or whatever. Sure. That's a, that's a different form of art. Uh, but it's what I, um, it's, I would say that the biggest thing for me is the freedom. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Well, Bob, thank you for taking time to talk with me today. Well, thank uh, you. Because, I just miss seeing the dog. Well, <laughs> darn, I'll have to, I'll have to post her latest picture on my Facebook page so you can see her because she is, she's a pretty cute dog, but uh, I, I certainly want to thank you. And uh, I, always wish you the best because you're uh one of my great friends and we have uh we go back for the 40 years man oh man which is hard to say out loud yeah yeah (laughs) it's hard to well like i i wrote i wrote in my narrative i said that you and i have known each other since before cell phones and the internet that's true. If you say dirt, then you've gone a little too far. Yeah, that's a little too far. But I'm <laughs> but, sure uh, you're uh, and wish all the best for you. Uh, continued success with your musical future. And thank and thank you, Craig. You're a, you're you're a wonderful scholar, a really good trumpet player and teacher. <laughs> and I, I uh, greatly value all that you are. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks again. Have a great day, Bob. Take care. My discovery composer this week is Paul Vranitsky, born 1756, died 1808. A Czech composer, conductor, and violinist, active in Vienna. He began his musical career in 1785 when he was appointed music director to Count Johann Nepomuk Esterhazy. Vranitsky played a prominent role in the musical life of Vienna. Both Haydn and Beethoven preferred him as a conductor of their works. Haydn insisted he conduct the Viennese performance of The Creation, and Beethoven tapped Vranitsky to conduct the premiere of his first symphony in 1800. He was also a member of the same Freemason Lodge, with Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Vranitsky's music reflects, in slightly simplified form, nearly all of the stylistic trends of the classical period. His first known works date from the early 1780s. His symphonies were written from 1786 to 1805. His best-known stage work was his Zingspiel, Oberon. Oberon prompted Schikaneder to conceive the magic flute for Mozart, whose work shows resemblance to Vranitsky's work. Even more popular in their day were Vranitsky's ballets, particularly Das Waldmatken. The All Music Guide lists 11 different recordings of Vranitsky's symphonies, one recording of his cello concerto, one recording of his flute concerto, and 18 different recordings of his chamber music. There is also a website devoted to Paul Vranitsky, The Vranitsky Project, which I provide the link to in my show notes. Also in my show notes is a link to a YouTube performance of Vranitsky's Grand Symphonie Charactistique in C minor, Opus 11.
That wraps episode number six. My show notes, along with links to artist websites, recording label websites, YouTube videos of artist performances, 